What's up, Stitches? Welcome back to So What? Isabella Rosner here, as always, ready and excited to take you on a journey through historic needlework. Today's episode is an interview I conducted back in February, and it's an absolute joy. It's an interview with two major textile curators, Melinda Watt and Amelia Peck. Melinda works at the Art Institute of Chicago, where she is the head of the textiles department and the Krista C. Mayer Thurman curator. Amelia works at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where she serves as the Maritza F. Vilcek Curator of American Decorative Arts and as the supervising curator of the Antonio Rotti Textile Center. I was lucky enough to intern for Melinda and Amelia at the Met during the summer of 2015 and 2016, and they taught me basically all I know about curating textiles. It's an absolute honor to interview them about curating needlework at major museums. Before moving to the Art Institute in 2018, Melinda worked at the Met in the Department of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts, and it's there that Amelia and Melinda collaborated on a number of exhibitions and installations. They worked on Interwoven Globe together, which was a major exhibition they talk about in the interview. Interwoven Globe, the worldwide textile trade, 1500 to 1800, was the first major exhibition to explore the international transmittal of design from the 16th to the early 19th century through the medium of textiles. It highlighted an important design story that had never before been told from a truly global perspective. During my time at the Met, I was lucky enough to work for Melinda in ESDA and Amelia in the American Wing, and it was actually because of their collaboration that my passion for needlework developed. In 2015, Amelia and Melinda worked together on an installation at the Met's Antonio Rotti Textile Center, which is one of the most technically advanced facilities for the study and storage of textiles in any major art museum, on the subject of schoolgirl samplers, and I was able to do research on some of the pieces. I learned about who made them and where and when, and realizing that I could rediscover who these girls were by their stitching changed my whole world and led me to where I am today. So not only am I grateful to Amelia and Melinda for letting me interview them today, but I'm also so, so grateful they introduced me to the beautiful world of textiles and women's needlework all those years ago. So now, on to the interview. As always, check out images of what we discuss in the conversation on the So What social media pages at So What Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's learn from the museum pros what it's like to research, exhibit, and educate the public about needlework, shall we? Yay! Hello, Amelia and Melinda. Thank you so much for being here. What a treat, what a joy. I am like red in the face with excitement. My cheeks are all pink because I'm so excited. It's so good to see your face. It really is. How did you both become textile curators? When students ask me this question, people say, how did you get to you know, where you are in your career? I have to say that I had a very kind of stereotypically feminine introduction to textiles, to needlework, to fashion. Um, my grandmother made all of my mother and my aunt's dresses. My mother made all of my dresses until I was old enough to say, could I have some store-bought clothes, please? <laughs> and my grandmother in particular was a fantastic embroiderer. 
So I had those two as, you know, very early models. And I'm also old enough to have taken home economics as a middle school student. So I knew I could make more than an ugly apron that we made in class because I had the model of my mother and my grandmother. And it really just grew from there. I mean, I've had sort of a winding path. I worked in the theater, as we've discussed. I worked um, as a theatrical customer for almost six years and decided that I was really less interested in putting on plays and more interested in the history of fashion and textiles. So that's really the early history. The end of Melinda's early history is exactly like mine, which was I was also in theater and doing costuming. And my problem was I hated actors so much that I just decided I just did not want to deal with them. And I was obviously much more interested in the history of textiles and, and, and costume than I was. And I don't think, all, honestly, I was a great designer. I was a designer who could take historical sources and make them into the costume, but I wasn't really massively creative as a designer. We didn't, my mom sewed a little bit, but she wasn't a great sewer. I did not have a brilliant sewer in my family to turn to like Melinda did, but I always liked to sew. And I started sewing clothes for my trolls. This is gonna date me how old I am. I had a collection of the first trolls, which were from the early 60s, probably early mid 60s. And um, I love the trolls. And the joke of my family is I had a lot of hair always sticking out that I looked like a troll. So therefore I should love the trolls. And it's kind of true. I do look like those trolls. Um, and no, so, <laughs> no you don't. not at all. Well, you don't look like the troll I had. Right, well, I think when I was a kid, I may have looked a little bit like a troll. Um, and so I started making clothes for my trolls and I made whole, I made houses. I had, you know, I, I made entire mise-en-scenes for my trolls. And I have this memory of making a wedding dress out of a little bit of an old slip. And I was actually like, I picked up pieces of it and sewed it with tiny little seed pearl beads. I mean, I was crazy and I was really, so I completely taught myself how to do this. So I don't know why that was, but I loved it. And then I also took home economics and made a really ugly peasant blouse and peasant skirt that was lavender with a Czech lavender top. But eventually, so my, my father was a cultural editor at the Times, and he was also very into theater. So I was taken to theater from the time I was a very little child. And so I always loved theater. And so somehow bringing the costumes and the theater, love of theater together. So I started um, as a summer intern or whatever they call them um, at the Williamstown Theater when I was 16. And I kept on going in theater until I was in all through college. And I actually um, did work study in college, sewing costumes. And so I got, I got pretty good as time went by at sewing. And then when I was, my first job in the city was at the Shakespeare Festival um, doing costume design. And that's when I discovered I really didn't like actors so much. And my last job when I decided to give it all up was um, being an assistant designer at the City Opera. So I had a lot of really fun New York experiences. And then I left all of that and I went to grad school in, of all things, historic preservation because I loved architecture too. And so my career has always been those two things. So I am at the Met, both the textile curator 
and the period room curator because I just, they may seem unrelated, but they're very interrelated in my mind. Um, and so I, that, that's my basic career path from trolls to now. Yeah, what would the trolls think? I love that <laughs> the trolls. And I have, I have the trolls. They are my heirlooms. They have not gone to anyone yet. When I die, someone will have to take care of them. I think my daughter Annie will take care of them. That I still a, have them. That is so iconic. And we have <laughs> that once she obtains the trolls that she also fashions entire scenes and costumes for them to carry on the family tradition. That would be nice. <laughs> I'll just reiterate how much fun and what a formative experience working in the theater, um, what Amelia said about working in the theater. Um, working in the theater for me was so much fun for someone just out of undergrad. I was a ceramics major. I never, ever you know intended to be a ceramic artist. I have no idea what I thought I was going to do. But I was a good seamstress because I'd been sewing since I was 12. So I was able to get a job at Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland, where I grew up. Then I went to Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. And then I worked at Parsons Mears, which is just a costume shop. It's not a theater um, in New York City. But the Long Wharf Theater experience was, was fantastic because the costume shop, the rehearsal studios, the main stage, the experimental stage, the offices, the scene shop are all in one spot. So you really felt like you were part of a whole. So that was, that was a really formative and really fun experience. And it's, a, you know, it's a bit like working on an exhibition in a museum. It's where Absolutely. you have, yeah, where you have your conservators, you have the curator who's most likely, you know, the, the conception is born of the curator, but there are so many people who contribute to the final product. I've always felt like um, doing any exhibition or period room or whatever was just like doing theater except for mm -hmm. in a longer, and especially the period rooms are so much about theater that you're, it's just like doing a play, but with a longer lead time. Um, but it's the same, you're telling a story, you may not be telling it by, with actors out there doing it, but your labels and, and the way you put your objects in the, uh, the exhibition, it's the same thing. You're, you're telling a story. And so I think there is much more correlation that maybe, than maybe people think when they, when they first see it. I was an English major. Who knows what I thought I was going to do with that. But it actually, I always say, um, kept me in very good stead because um, a lot of being a curator is writing. You have to write all the time. And I think I write almost more than most curators. I mean, I, I, I'm a big writer and I enjoy writing. I always feel like it's one of the most creative things that I do in my job because when you're installing an exhibition, it's really wonderful for a few weeks and then it's gone and it's done and it's up. And so that's a really intense creative thing. But somehow writing for me, um, always it's like shaping a pot and I did I did do pottery for a long time too <laughs> never thought I was going to be professional anyway but it we is, really uh, are sisters separated we, we are, by just, just a little bit of time crazy. and space <laughs> <laughs> but um but it so I would always say to I say to anyone who's coming up in the, the field that um writing is incredibly important and you need to, you need to, if you don't have the skill or you feel uncomfortable with your skill, 
just got to keep working and working and working at it because it's it it is sort of one of the things that um, being a curator you really need to do and do well because you're communicating about these objects and you have to be clear and you have to know what you're talking about and you have to be able to tell people about them. Yeah, totally. You know, another thing I think that the theater certainly helped me with was looking at objects and understanding fabrics. And when you're actually making clothes, when you're choosing fabrics, when you're figuring out the drape, you're thinking about colors, you really learn how to look at something. And I feel like um, I, I'm a very object-based curator, and I think most of us in textiles um, are the same. You really need to understand to use the popular term materiality now um, in its, you know, its most sort of basic sense. You need to understand the materials because anyone who is creating embroidery or any other type of textiles understood the capabilities of a particular thread, the needle, the foundation fabric, it's all so important. And when you had that hand on hands-on experience, you can extrapolate uh, into even another technique. I am not an embroiderer. I do lots of other things, but I've never I been an embroiderer. I embroider yeah. a little bit. I think yeah. I was. I think I was intimidated by my grandmother's skill. I thought, "Ooh, I'm never going to be that good." Yeah, Whereas no, I was, I was a good seamstress. But there also wasn't a clear academic path to enter um, textiles, embroidery, and fashion. Any of those subjects. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I when I first got to the Met, I was I was in between my two years of, at Columbia with my doing my. Uh, Masters of Science in Historic Preservation, which is so funny that I have a Masters of Science degree. Um, and um, I, so I got there and then they kept me on and I was doing projects and I kept on sort of being told, well, you need to go do a PhD, when, even when I was an assistant curator. And I would look around and this was in the early 80s, I guess. And I was like, what PhD program is going to do textiles or even interiors, you know, they, 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 no one cares about this. I don't think that's true now as much, but there was no place for me to go. So it's like, should I get a second master's, which I do know some people did second master's, but uh, which, you know, at one point I was told I should go to Winterthur and get a second master's at Winterthur. What that was going to do for me, I couldn't quite figure out. Um, but there was really no academic path. So um, at this point, I'm going to put in my plug for interning, which is just what you did, um, and learning on the job. I think there's something being lost with all of these people who just stay in academia and then drop into the museum world and don't have that experience, that hands-on experience that we all got either from theater and then on, but, but I learned so much just following a more, a senior curator around and being his assistant and working on the Frank Lloyd Wright room with him way back in the, again, in the eighties. That's how I learned how to do my job by working with a guy named Craig Miller, who I'm still friendly with. He emailed me yesterday um, back, you know, in, again, in the eighties. So that's another thing I always think that, that we're losing something by insisting that people only have academic credentials that they need, that you can learn so much about your job just being on the job. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. 
Can you please tell me a bit about your collaborative exhibitions and the work you've done separately? I know that when I walked into the Met, you guys had just recently done Interwoven Globe, and then one of the summers I was there, you were working on the sampler installation. I loved seeing you two work together, and I'd love to hear you two talk about working together. I'm going to start on that one. It was, I, I honestly barely knew Melinda before Interwoven Globe, though we were at, you know, I probably started running into Melinda when she was a Rati, you know, when she started, when she was working Rati. <clears throat> but quite honestly, I'm going to sound terrible. I, I had no sense of you. I mean, you were just like in the Rati, one of the people in the Rati Center. But yeah, I, no, I was in collections management. And when yeah. you wanted to see a quilt, I got it out for you. Right. But I, you're but welcome. We, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but so, and then Melinda moved up the ladder as she certainly should have. And so by the time Interwoven Globe, you were, were you an associate curator then or a full curator? I can't even remember what you were. I think I was an associate because that was just after, um, not too long after the Bard Graduate Center project, Twixt Art and Nature with the English right. embroidery. So um, right. yeah, you, you contacted me. I was just sort of coming down off of that project and you got in touch with me. Right. And I got in touch with Melinda. And so Melinda became part of this team for Interwoven Globe, which was a huge project with, I don't even remember how many objects, but there were well over a hundred and I can't even remember how many over a hundred it was. So my favorite part of Interwoven Globe, honestly, was that we would get together every Tuesday or Wednesday mm -hmm. afternoon in the Rati Center and we would pull out we start sort of country by country because we had a database and I would look through the database and find things that looked odd and different and not typical and, and sort of like, wow, why, why is that? What is that that we're looking at right now? And so we had Melinda and me, um, Joyce Denny, who did Chinese and Japanese, um, John Guy, who did Indian, um, Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, who was doing fashion. Um, Marika Sardar, who also did Indian. Um, so and then was, Elena. And Elena Phipps, who did South American. So it was a fabulous team. And we just stand around the tables for a couple hours just talking about the textiles. So that's, that's when we're talking about how, how object-based we both are. That that's was the great joy of that exhibition. Um, and so as time went by, <clears throat> Melinda really became my, my alter ego on that project as well. My second, my second in command, like what, uh, anytime, the lieutenant, the lieutenant, <laughs> lieutenant Melinda. And um, anytime that, um, and we also had Amy Boganski, who did, who knew a lot about um, slave cloth and, and trade with Africa. So it was an amazing team. It was just like, couldn't be better. Um, and so um, we, as a team, put the show together. And I love working with teams. I love working with other people. I'm not happy, honestly, just doing stuff from my own head. And so during that show, I remember a moment where Melinda and I, we had gone up to Salem to see their Chinese export textiles. We had a lovely trip to Salem. And so on the train ride down from Salem, Melinda and I started chatting in a way that we really, you know, a good, a good three hour chat. And it turned out we found out that we had all these things in common. And I think that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. 
And, Absolutely. Um, and so that that's my version of interwoven globe and how we work together but maybe melinda has a different version she hated me the entire time (laughs) (laughs) that is absolutely not the case i was so grateful to be asked first of all because i was sort of coming down off of this big project and thinking what am i going to do next and i had i had a writing project and was getting into that but this just sounded so compelling so interesting we saw, you know, those, those weekly or bi-weekly um, viewing sessions where we would look at things from different parts of the world. We saw things that we would never have seen in the collection, that even those of us who, so I was in European sculpture and decorative arts. I was responsible for Western European textiles from 1500 to 1900. I saw things in my collection that I might never have pulled out. I saw things in other collections that I would never have had occasion to see. One of my favorite pairings was the tapestry from your department that, again, has weird, maybe Chinese, maybe some Indian people. Who knows what they invented? It completely invented. It's 16 something or other. 1690s. um, John Van der Bank. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting piece. And there was this really weird rug in the Islamic department that for years they kept on thinking maybe was a fake that had European figures on it. And we looked and looked and looked and finally we figured out that it was derived from a European friend of speech, which had the seasons. And then we found one of those wonderful embroidered mirrors that right. um, you undoubtedly love. So these are all from the 17th century with the, with this very similar figures to the people who were in this Islamic carpet and the people, and then the weird version of <clears throat> Asian people in the English thing. It was just like, Oh my God, you know, and we kept on finding things like that all the time that were just, wow, whoever would have thought that these were all connected, but they are. Yeah, there were so many cultural rifts. It wasn't just Western Europeans and Americans sort of riffing on other cultures, but it it was these, these cultures and these countries along the Silk Road reacting to you know persians reacting to china india reacting to persia india reacting to the west etc 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 and so that was you know that was the, really the richest discovery we we didn't want it to be a purely western look at the east and you know by the nature of the collections it had to be slightly more focused in that direction but we really worked to um to kind of even out the emphasis as much as we could and to show things like that amazing carpet that no one really understood from the perspective of a uh, Iranian or Persian or North Indian culture where those kinds of carpets are made. I love that so much, the interpretation of how other people in the world at the same time saw each other. Think about a character, um, a personality like uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague who figures, who made needlework, who figures in needlework, not only in England, but in North America as well. Um, that was another fantastic discovery that she, as, uh, as a woman of such character, was, she had reverse ripples, she had a reputation that made it to North America, which for us in the early 18th century, 
um, and into the 19th century seems, still seems incredible. Right. So there, yeah, there's this a crazy, wonderful uh, Connecticut, small town in Connecticut, Sampler, where there was um, a, clearly a school that we've never been able to really find out exactly who was teaching. And there's a series of these, but the Sampler and the Mets collection is the only one with um, all, some other ones have views of the Levant and views of, ours has views of India and the Ganges. Um, but yes. then at the bottom, there's that crazy scene of Lady Mary Wortley Montague going to visit the Kai's harem um, in, in Turkey with her, with the Greek lady and, and this long inscription about it, which of course I had no idea what this was for the longest time. And I was very lucky to have a wonderful volunteer at some point who figured out what this was and God bless her. And she was a ceramicist, actually, honestly, that's what she did, but she wanted to do volunteer work on textiles for some reason. I guess it's all related somehow. Um, and so, and then from there, we learned how influential Lady Mary Wortley Montague was on the world of dress and on the world of textiles and on the world of health, considering she was the first person to really publicize smallpox vaccines. And, and I would also say anyone who wants an amusing read, read her travel diaries. They are so interesting. And there are lots of, there's lots of uh, textile and fashion in them. Because she comments on what the ladies in all the different uh, areas are wearing and what their houses are like and all that stuff. So it's, it's really a great read. You know, just to go back to the collaborative question, um, I was mentioning that I did um, Twixt Art and Nature, um, English Embroidery from the Met with the Bard Graduate Center, which I had finished just before Amelia asked me to work on um, Interwoven Globe. And you know, for your own information, Isabella, and for inspiration for your listeners, um, that for me, re that really introduced me to all of the, the incredible benefits of collaboration. So as the curator responsible for 17th and 18th century British needlework in the Mets collection, I was thinking about doing an exhibition. Um, one thing led to another, and we decided to do it at the Bard Graduate Center as a, in a series of collaborations that the Met did with the, um, with the graduate programs. And I ended up working with Andrew Morrill, who is really an expert in European religion and culture of the 16th and 17th century. So he didn't know this, these objects at all. He didn't know the genre of 17th century British needlework with all its eccentricities and intricacies. And I certainly was no expert on the religious thought and all of the religious controversies that were bubbling up in the 16th and 17th century. I had the sort of basic, oh, Henry VIII wanted to divorce his first wife, so that's why the English aren't Catholics. You know, that's pretty much what I knew. And he added so much depth to the interpretation of the religious imagery and the royal imagery. And we also learned so much more about the objects themselves. So it was an incredibly fruitful collaboration. And we were also able to bring the students along with us. And uh, they were, we had some excellent students. We had one student who was um, an expert, still is an expert in heraldry, um, which was not a skill that either Andrew or myself had. So 
those kinds of conversations that you can have with different people of different skills that you wouldn't necessarily think of going to someone who knows about religion and philosophy in your era, whatever era you're studying, to talk about needlework. But uh, it was, it made the project what it was. It made the project as successful as it was. And then I had um, <clears throat> been doing, a, I've always done a lot on the American sampler collection because what the, what the Met is strong in, in American textiles are quilts and samplers. And then there's a lot of other sort of interesting stuff like the Candace Wheeler collection and things like that. But, but so I've been working on samplers um, for many years and I think it may have come out of a deaccessioning project. Was that what happened? So Melinda, I think you were, Melinda yeah. was charged with looking through the European samplers to perhaps get rid of some of them. And as sacrilegious as that may sound, there were some that were really, really, really sad. We accepted a huge gift in the 1950s. Uh, 57. You know, we just needed to edit, edit the collection. So then a great collaboration and installation happened. Indeed, a, because we, saw, we actually saw a lot of really lovely things as well. And um, we began to make connections between American samplers and, and the European samplers, which are obvious that they should be connected in some way. And so we thought, let's do a little show in the Rocky Center with highlights from both of our collections and sort of how they related. So that's how that all happened. They hadn't really been exhibited before or not for a very long time. So it was really nice to pull the group together and look at the similarities and differences. What are your favorite needleworked objects? It's the worst question because it's like picking your children, I know. But I, I have to ask because I'm, I'm curious and I have to know. I chose one for today. Okay. I have, I have many, many favorites, but I wanted to choose one for today that, has, that I absolutely adore. It's called Winter. It is a picture, and it, I'm going to give an accession number so people can look it up if they want. It's 2013.113, and it's this lovely picture of a, looks like it was made in Pennsylvania, and it looks like a Pennsylvania landscape with a Pennsylvania house and smoke coming out, and a lovely dog standing on the path looking at the house. And then the back, the sky is painted but everything else is, it's got chenille, it's got silk, it's, it's just the most charming thing. And it was made by a girl named Hannah Robinson in February of 1819. So I think of this every February. Um, and it, if it weren't snowing today, this is kind of how the landscape might look. But um, she, it turns out that she and her sisters had a needlework school in their little town. And so she was quite good, as were her sisters. And later on, I found that Winterthur has a couple pieces by Robinson Girls, and it's part of a group. But my favorite part of it is that it's called Winter, and it, she did it in February. And this is the verse, which says, okay, Winter. And then it says, see how Winter's icy hand has stripped the trees and seared the ground, but spring shall soon his rage withstand and spread new beauties all around. And so it gives me hope 
I love this piece because it's charming and hopeful and has meaning to me because I hate February. It's my least favorite month. So I am using, I have many, many other favorite pieces, but just for today, I thought I would bring out my favorite February piece. I love that. And what's really embarrassing or great, I don't know, is literally as soon as you said that accession number, I knew exactly which one it is. Cause I, <laughs> I love how people look at it all the time. So when you said 2013, I was like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen here. <laughs> I, yeah, I love that piece. Great choice. Thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. I am not going to be able to top that. Um, I thought more about types of work that I have enjoyed learning about over the years and that have impressed me over the years. Um, and I love to teach and to talk about and to consider the accomplishments of Bess of Hardwick at Hardwick Hall yes. in the late 16th century when she and her family and people she hired to do drawings and the captive Mary Queen of Scots produced this incredible body of needlework to decorate her home. And she insisted in her will that those objects stay with the house. So they are still there. I mean, it's, it's as, as Milton Sande, our, uh, my, uh, really a, a mentor of mine in the field, um, said, it's like Hogwarts. It's like going back in time. It's like going into a fairyland, um, Hardwick Hall. So I, those pieces, that project, thinking about the, the kind of semi-pro status of those needleworkers is just endlessly fascinating to me. Um, and it was, you know, it was a big part of, it's always been a big part of discussions about historic needlework for me. People say, well, this is professional or amateur. And there is that kind of semi-pro category of people who were not paid to be needleworkers, but who excelled in a way that amateurs in the 21st century wouldn't dream of excelling in any field. They would be professionals. So that and then I, and and you know sort of moving through history i'm obviously inspired by women who are highly accomplished i think about the work of mary delaney mrs delaney who did the fantastic paper cutouts but also did some incredible floral embroidery and her using similar motifs her study of botany that she, that really informed her work so that she was making both these paper cutout pictures and these embroideries that were very realistic but incredibly creative i i love that use of textures and threads to make something that is convincing that bringing bringing as Amelia refers to bringing nature inside bringing life to the interior um, celebrating a time of the year when you are um, when it's dark and cold outside celebrating more pleasant times of the year I mean I think that's for me that was part of what Bess of Hardwick was trying to do in her home um, in addition to all of the emblematic work that she did, that's what Mary Delaney was doing in her clothes. Um, it's what so many people have done, really celebrating nature. I think that's one of my favorite 
most beloved themes in, in needlework is this kind of celebration of nature, whether it is in verse or it is in a depiction of na nature. It's a, it's a subject that is just particularly well suited to, um, to embroidery. And I'm going to bring up one more, one more piece because it relates to what Melinda has been talking about, which is an easy chair, an American easy chair. And the number is 50.228.3 for those of you who want to go on the website. And it is from Newport, the chair frame itself. The front of it that would be facing into the room is beautiful flame stitch. And totally even, totally perfect. Um, maybe an amateur, maybe a professional. There's so much of it that you could see that maybe there was a workshop where these there were people who, who were making flame stitch for this, um, this chair, but the back of it is really what is the charmer. The back of it is clearly schoolgirl needlework. It is nature at its most glorious. So it has a hunt and it is a shepherd. It has a beautiful sunlit sky with birds. It's just the most amazing thing. And it's done in long wool stitches and it's very kind of classic Boston. So I have a whole fantasy. That's the other thing about, about needlework. You get to have fantasies about how they were made when you don't know. And this was made, the chair itself is dated 1758. So sometime around then it was made. Um, I have a fantasy that this girl was sent from Newport to Boston to go to one of the wonderful sewing schools that were in Boston. And her mother said, I've got this easy chair. I'm getting the flame stitch all made in the front. Could you make me a back? And the back, you, no one would really see the back. The back normally would be to a wall or someplace. Though maybe if it pulled it, they, she pulled it out in front of her, the fire. But easy chairs were mostly in bedrooms. They were not public kind of chairs. Um, and so she may have sent her the canvas shaped to it. And then um, this whole wonderful scene was drawn on and the girl made it. So it's this great, maybe partially professional, partially um, amateur, brimming with nature. And um, so when M Melinda started talking about it, it just reminded me of another extremely favorite object of mine in the collection. That's a chair, but completely needleworked. There you go. That's the interview. You'll notice I didn't ask their thoughts about the role of needlework in today's world and didn't say my usual thank you at the end of this interview. And that's because we ended up chatting and catching up for so long we didn't get to all of the questions. But hopefully that means next season I'll do a part two with them and we'll get to the rest of the topics. Anywho, it really was such a joy and an honor to interview Melinda and Amelia. They taught and continue to teach me so much about what it means to curate textiles, and I hope that our discussion taught you a lot too. I'm so happy to know that some of the U.S.'s largest textile collections are being cared for by such enthusiastic, knowledgeable, passionate women. American needlework collections are in really good hands. Okay, that's it for me this week. As always, thank you for listening and for supporting So What? And thank you to Amelia and Melinda for sharing all of their sage wisdom and wonderful stories. I feel super lucky to know them and to be able to share their words with all of you. Now go out and stitch some stories and go sew clothing for your trolls. Bye!
Thank you.